Blessed Lord, you have caused all all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, including Isaiah chapter 9. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest these words, that encouraged and supported by your Holy Word, we may embrace and always hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. A glance at the Christmas story, even a long glance will show you that Christianity might be moderately important. For example, historically important for Western society and thinking, for sure. It might be important, you might say, for spirituality in the general sense, a way to connect to God once or twice a year. Maybe we might gain from the Christmas story a number of things, for example, humility is better than pride, think the manger. Or people are more important than powers, think King Herod. How about trust is better than cynicism, think Mary who believed. Or that God has a general disposition of care for the poor and the broken. All of that, all of that is important. But in very real terms, it's only important to establish that Christianity is moderately important. I'll tell you why. Because there are a number of ways in which we might arrive at that conclusion, those conclusions. And we might say, it doesn't matter how we get there, as long as we get there, arrive at those conclusions. Humility being more important than pride, for example. Well, I'm here to disagree. I'm here to say, not so. And I'm here to argue not for moderately important, but infinitely important. I'm here to argue for faith, not mere glances at the Christmas story. The famous writer of the Narnia series, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, once contended, Christianity of false is of no importance. Oh, that's true. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, that's worth pondering. Christianity of false is of no importance. I mean, maybe for Western society. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So I want to contend this afternoon that Christianity is of infinite importance because it's about what God has done and is still doing and will do. And I want to contend for you to have a new heart towards God, which will result in new days and weeks and behaviours. I'll argue for that. I'm looking for a Christmas miracle in hearts. And maybe you're not ready there, you're not uh, ready for the full implications of the Christmas story, but so perhaps even tonight you might just gain a new appreciation for some levels of the Christian story. That'll work too. Our Advent series this year, through the whole of, the, of December, is The Weary World Rejoices because we're in a weary world and I'm looking to rejoice. Amen? The phrase comes from the old French carol just sung to us and we're going to sing it with voices on Christmas Eve. Thank you, Andy. Goes like this, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared 
and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Or to put it in the words of Isaiah, a light has dawned. In the series, we're looking through key passages in Isaiah. We're calling them purple passages, regal passages, glorious passages. Today is Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, printed on page 17. It's worth saying that our world is not the first world to be weary. Talk to your grandparents if they're still with us. Isaiah's world was weary too. These words were written in the 8th century BC, 700s BC, to Israel long ago, a weary world then, suffering under judgment. And there's promise in Isaiah, promise after promise, that God will come, and this is one of them. In fact, we've read several tonight through the prophet Isaiah and Micah. The prophet wrote this to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is north in Israel, up where Nazareth was and currently is. That is, you could catch a plane to, what's the airport? Tel Aviv? And I've, I'm told it's like a, an hour bus ride to the old city of Nazareth. Is that right, somebody? I, people nodded this at 4 p.m. About an hour. You can go there. 800 years ago, to the area of Nazareth, this simple word, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Now look at verse 2. What could it mean? Well, to get it, I have two questions. One, what is this light, this dawn? And secondly, what could we say about this light? What would we learn? Firstly, what is the light? Well, the light is a person. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Light is good, and even the smallest amount of it dispels the deepest, darkest darkness. Is there any one of the carol goes, light and life to all Christ brings, risen with healing in his wings? Historically, Isaiah 9 is about the end of Israel's exile, the end of the judgment for her own sins. She was lying down in the, the, the gutter of her own choices, and God had judged them for it. And this here is the light at the end of the tunnel. If I can put it this way, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Who is he, this light? Well, here in Isaiah, it's a son born but not named. The name Jesus does not appear in the Old Testament. But it's a particular child, born king, to grow up to judge the world with justice with righteousness and forever into eternity. Indeed, the government will be upon his shoulders, verse 6. But more than that, and this is the kicker, this is the point where you go, oh, so I have to become a follower of Jesus. Because this child is to be, bought, is to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's an understanding in Judaism that mighty God will be born. The light, then, is a person. Is it any wonder we live in a relational world, not a mere economic one? And so the light is a person, not a regime change, not a government program, not social re-engineering, not a new curriculum for schools, not a stimulus package, and not a vaccine. The light, then, is a man from the north, from the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, verse 1, from Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus withdrew to Galilee, in fact, to Capernaum, which we're told in Matthew 4, verse 13, was by the lake. You see that in Isaiah 9, verse 1. In the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had said, land of Zebulon and Naphtali, the people walking in darkness, have seen a great light, those living in death's shadow, a light has dawned. And then from that time on, we get told, and this is what's important for us, from that time on, Jesus began to speak, to preach, repent, turn around, everyone, because the promised kingdom, from here in Isaiah 9 and all the way through the scriptures, has come near. God has turned up, and you're not ready, was, for example, the word of John the Baptist. This is news from God, and because it's from God to all his creatures, all those knit together in their mother's wombs, all those owned by God, he owns us all. What it means is that everybody needs to change and no one can leave here unchanged, not if they understand this message properly. We'll come back to that. Second, then, uh, what do we say about this slide? And three things I've written there on page 18 in the outline. This slide is unexpected, and you'll find God does that. He doesn't dance to our tune. It is comprehensive, not minuscule, and yet, in Isaiah's day, unfinished. It is first, unexpected. God does unexpected things, even in human hearts. No one expected the king to come from the north, from Nab from Nazareth, from Zebulon and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, right in their world, the dogs. You know, this is from the boondocks. These are all muggle-borns. But God doesn't dance to our tune. It is fundamental in the Bible's narrative that one must come. They just didn't expect him to come from the north. They expected a king. They used the word Messiah, but it means the same thing. We have several words for this king, Kaiser, Caesar, Tsar, in the Jewish world, Messiah, they all mean Lord, but in Jewish thought, where this comes from, it means not only ruler, but also rescuer or Lord and Saviour. He's my Lord and Saviour. Someone had to come, and this is the promise, to fix our greatest problem, and what's that? We needed someone to come, a mighty one, to get underneath, in and underneath, the biggest problem humans solve and solve it. One must come to be a, if I can put it this way, a vaccine for death itself, for those living in death's shadow. 100% of us die. 100% of us are sinful. We all live in death's shadow. This word here, land of the shadow of death, is the same one that's used in the 23rd Psalm. And each of us walk in death's shadow. Is there a path through it, a light? 
But we want to play the power game, most humans do, and so we want that person to be big, powerful, born in a palace, huge presence, perhaps a beautiful person, uh, able to capture a huge following, perhaps with large or significant oratory skills, and we want the person born in the right place too. In Isaiah's day, they wanted him born in Jerusalem. That would make him kosher. It's the seat of government, the locus of power and hope. Or maybe south in the town of David, Bethlehem, that'll do too, Micah chapter 2, that was prophesied. But certainly not from Nazareth in the north. North, you may as well say he's come from Wagga Wagga. The boonies, redneck land. In fact, in Jesus' day, you know this from John's Gospel, there was a phrase, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, you've got that phrase for the town you think is the boonies. Jesus came from Nazareth. That's where he was raised. He's the man from Nazareth. He's from the boonies. Sure, he was born in Bethlehem. The, the, the people then didn't know that, or they, not many did. It's on his birth certificate. Micah said it 700 years before. You, Bethlehem, though you are small, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. One of the key messages of the New Testament is that God comes, but not from the normal places. We think he abides by my rules that God could, should confer, conform to my will, as though God were putty in my hands or clay in my hands. That's when you say things like, I like to think of God as this, or I like to think of God as that. It doesn't matter. Not if you're a piece of clay and the God who made heaven and earth is the potter. I think a lot of us tend to think of God like a set of car keys. Where I put them is where they're to be found. So where I think of God is, that's where he is to be found, or she, or it, or whatever you, what, that's what we tend to think. But what if God's ways are not my ways? What if his ways are higher than my ways? His values don't magically square with mine. What if God is not a product of my inner spirituality, what if I have to find the set of keys in an unusual place? I don't know about you, but I lose keys, you know, on a daily basis. And uh, I try to put them in the usual place. And my wife will say to me, do you look in the usual places? And when you can't, yes, when I can't find them in the usual places, it's time to go and look in unusual places for those set of keys. Well, maybe tonight one of the messages is it's time to look for God in an unusual place, not here but in Nazareth, long ago, where the light has dawned. Second, this light, his coming, is comprehensive, not just small. It's not just something inside me, but something for the whole world. Jesus' birth is the beginning of something big, something global. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. The promise of God to renew all things comes from Nazareth. That's where the light has dawned for a day that stretches into eternity. From Nazareth will come the son born who will eventually, according to the promise, bring an end to war, to bring peace. The historic context of, of this is Israel's exile at the hands of Assyria. That's in verses 4 to 6. The rod of their oppressor taken away, every warrior's boot and every garment rolled in blood, um, burnt for fire, like done away with. You can do away with your tanks and you can put away your guns. Because this one comes who will bring peace, verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign 
forever establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. In the Isaiah passage, he sees inside every human heart. He doesn't judge by what he sees. And the wolf will lie with the lamb, right? The little child will lead them. This vision of the future where there's complete peace. It's comprehensive, it's substantial, and it is eternal. This is the kingdom of God. Now you see where all this is going. By the time of the New Testament, even in Isaiah's times, this peace comes not by defeating the great enemy, which was Assyria in those days. It's not about government. It's not about those bad people over there. The great enemy is sin inside the human heart and the decay that comes on the outside. It is death itself, sin and death itself all of us living in the land of deep darkness, death's shadow. But on us, a light has dawned. That's why we sing. Those in death's shadow can see a light in the person of Jesus. But thirdly and finally, it's unfinished in Isaiah's day because the main prophecy is in verse 6. To us, a child is born, not just to Mary and Joseph, to us, a son is given, not just to the people of Israel long ago. To us, a son is given. Jesus is a gift of God in which Jesus gives us a gift, namely God himself. But all of this was unfulfilled in the 8th century BC. No one came. And certainly not someone who they identified as mighty God they would have thought that is blasphemy or everlasting father, and certainly not the Prince of Peace. In the ancient Near Eastern world, kings heaped names on themselves, like the Greaty and Might One, the Mighty One, the Lord and the Conqueror, that sort of thing. But this one is interesting because this name is given to him from above, and it's Jewish, not pagan, and so this little one born will be Mighty God, not just the Almighty One. But the name of God is evoked here in the Hebrew. It's El. I have a rabbi friend who, who I know from New York when I lived there. He's the chaplain to the NYU, to New York University. And I went up to him. We're good friend, we were good friends when I lived there. And, and I said to him, what do you do with a text like this? And he said to me, honestly, Justin, in Hebrew, it's genuinely problematic. Like, I don't know what to do with it. The name of God is evoked. This child born is to be God, that was a fun conversation. Good guy. But there's no way this prophecy is ever fulfilled in the Old Testament. No child born, no son given, no restoration of the throne of David, no eternal peace. It remains unfinished until an angel appears to a teenage girl called Mary, where in Matthew 1, 21, we read these words, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. His name will be God with us. No wonder, Jesus said to those who thought him moderately important, you will be judged because you did not recognize the time of God's visitation. But if you're nervous, is it true? Should I follow Jesus? John the Baptist was nervous in prison and he sent a note to Jesus, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? He knew Isaiah. 
And Jesus replied, you go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor, all purple passages in Isaiah. Jesus is light in a dark world. Jesus is rest in a weary world. You have to come to terms with this claim. One has come, one will come. Mighty God is a baby, God with us, to be Lord and Saviour, to open a door to living in light of his kingdom, yielding to his will. You can no more, no more ignore him than you can ignore the sun. It's just a reality. You can no more ignore him than a boat ignore a lighthouse. It's there. He's there. You can no more ignore him than an Australian can ignore Australia. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, but he goes to the cross, but he rises from the dead as Lord, born that may no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. He brings peace to hearts first by forgiveness. You can have it tonight. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment's time. Then he brings peace to communities now committed to following Jesus Christ. And eventually, as we wait for him, the whole world, he will be Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father. You need to do business with him even today. And I'm going to pray a prayer on page 19. It's a very ancient prayer. It's at least 400 years old. It's set for the, uh, to, to be prayed on this day each, uh, each, um, each season. I'm going to pray that prayer in a moment, but I want to say this. Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let's pray. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you to pray this prayer with me as the band come up and ready to sing our final two carols together. If you look over the words on page 19, there's some ancient language here, or some old language, I should put it that way. You know, beseech means ask, but, you know, perhaps maybe the word is pleading. We plead with you, Lord. Pour your grace into our hearts. Forgive us now, you see. That as we have known the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ, by the message of the angel, so by his cross and passion we will be brought to his glorious resurrection. So it's about hope in the end. So why don't we pray this prayer together? We beseech you, Lord, pour your grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion, we may be brought to the glory of his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.